the opportunity to turn to God's Word tonight from Luke chapter 13. Read verses 10 through 21 of Luke 13. This follows on the heels of what Jesus has said in the parable of the barren fig tree, a fig tree which produced no fruit, his condemnation of coming to a world that is fruitless. Now he shows us who it is that bears fruit in his kingdom in Luke 13, verse 10, all the way to 21. Before we hear God's word, shall we ask him for his blessing? Heavenly Father, we seek to hear you speak to us. We pray that as we open your word together, that you would guide us by your spirit, that the one who inspired these pages would now illuminate them to our hearts. We confess our need to hear from you. We confess that our wills, our affections that are bent apart from your word, that you would straighten according to the truth. We pray that you would warm our hearts with the kindness of your grace and that we would rest and truly trust only in the finished work of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord from Luke 13, beginning at verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, until it was all leavened. Thus far from God's word, may he add his blessing tonight as we hear it preached and proclaimed. O congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, certain moments of time echo louder than other moments. 
Not all days are equal in our lives. Certain days feel slow and routine. They are filled with the ordinary and trivial events of life. And then there are certain days that are are fast-paced and filled with anxiety and sweat, cares and concerns. And still further, there are greater moments in our lives where time itself seems to be cemented and time itself stands still. And the moments are impressed upon us forever. The echoes of these days last for every day. They reverberate into every second of the rest of our lives. Our wedding day replays itself into every day that follows. Now we are husband or wife or the birth of our first child or any child, and every subsequent day after and following, now we are mother to this child or father to this child. And our lives are ordered and structured around central events of those days. And so it is with the Sabbath day. One day stands in the middle of who we are as believers, and our lives are ordered around it like concentric circles, wrapping around its orbit so that the Sabbath echoes into every day of our lives, and the gravity of that day pulls and shapes us heavenward to God himself. And you remember him designing that day, he saw fit that at the end of his creative work, that he himself rested from his labors, not a rest to recover, but a rest in order to reign over his creation, to rule it, and to receive from his good creation all of the praise and glory that was due his name, to consecrate all of life to himself, so that all of life would be stamped with his glory. Worship is the the culminating act of creation. Man standing upright in communion with his his creator. And offering all of himself in praise. All of life was created for Sabbath. Not for one day only, but continually and forever. And we long for this, this... complete consummation of that day in the new heavens and the new earth where our rest will be unending and unending and even now creation itself groans under the weight of of the curse waiting for the day of redemption because we feel the, the tremors of what has happened since the fall just as it would be in a broken marriage no longer does that wedding day sing throughout our lives, but it burns in our brains. It poisons every day that follows. And so it is after the fall. Rest is now unavailable. Every day is burdened. Every day we draw shallow breath under the weight of the chains that enslave us, twisted and turned inside out, broken under the, the burden of the tyranny of the devil. And that's what we see in this story recorded for us in Luke 13. We see a woman who has been held under the tyranny of Satan for 18 years, unable to stand straight. And we also see the grace of God mending his broken creation, the kingdom of God announcing the coming of his Sabbath day, the year of Jubilee, where the Lord of the Sabbath straightens crooked and fallen sinners and gives them rest. This woman paints the picture of why it is we come to church and what it is that we should expect from the church when we come. Notice these three things this evening. First, her back-breaking bondage laid upon her. Uh, Second, this head-hanging hypocrite who misuses the Sabbath. And finally, the Sabbath-straightening salvation. 
which always results in praise. First, we see this backbreaking bondage that accompanies the tyranny of Satan. This woman is quite literally beset by a spirit of infirmity or of weakness. It's a disabling spirit. She is said to have been in bondage for 18 years. Or even told by Jesus that she is oppressed by Satan himself. And that's not to say that she was demon-possessed, but rather that she is demon-oppressed. She is still a daughter of Abraham. She was a frequent synagogue and church-going lady. Even as disabled and helpless, she still shuffled her way, faithful to keep Sabbath after Sabbath, to hear the law of God and the commandments. She was a member of the covenant people. And yet her her condition is emblematic of God's covenant people. They're bent over. Their, their heads are facing the ground. They're craning their necks to seek their, their Lord. The picture of this woman is that she is bent over in shame, shuffling her feet, the kind of woman that the people in the synagogue would never sit next to, dismissed and ignored, subje- subjected to, to the oppression of this disabling spirit, helplessly by herself, Imagine the long 18 years of backbreaking pain, the physical and mental torment of being bound. Charles Spurgeon makes the comment that she walked as if she were searching for a grave and perhaps hoping at times to fall into one. Crippled and bent from Satan's bondage, how miserable. And the Bible says she could not fully straighten herself. She's stuck. Too weak to look up, scanning the floor with eyes too weak to look into anyone's face, and perhaps hoping not to meet anyone else's gaze, that no one would see her as she is, hoping to be forgotten. The kingdom of Satan has so oppressed her that she is reduced to being an animal. Even worse, she knows it's not supposed to be this way, that she's a daughter of Abraham. Is there no honor left in the line of Abraham for those who believe according to the promise? Why come to church? Isn't that where healing is supposed to take place, like a hospital for sinners bent over from the bondage of sin? And see, we often also come to church with the same disposition, hearts hanging downwards. Maybe physically we we were tormented by ailments and infirmities. We carry burdens that none of us sees. Or we feel the, the weakness in our flesh. Or maybe emotionally we are drained by constant sorrow, constant fear. Perhaps spiritually we're broken by our sins. We feel the tempter's power week to week. We keep our eyes peeled, yet we're exhausted from failure. Overcome by the accusations of the accuser, which replays itself over and over and over in our heads. And we find ourselves very much like this woman, bent, broken, unable to stand, craning our necks, feeling the shame, the dismissal, hoping to find a grave that no one would see us. And yet that's exactly why we come to church. Because we read Jesus sees. God's grace dwells with these people. The glory which once filled the temple, that Shekinah glory cloud, now by the Spirit filling his church. We read that Jesus came to this particular synagogue this one Sabbath 
And that he saw this poor woman, and in verse 12 it says that when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. I release you from your bondage. What a remarkable sermon. His sermon is not a to-do list. His sermon is not a list of requirements that she must do. His sermon and every good sermon is an announcement that God has done something external to us, outside of us. While we can't even stand up straight, while we are subjugated to backbreaking bondage, he promises freedom. That's the consistent message of salvation throughout the Bible. That's what our Lord in the second person of the Trinity says on every turn of the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Remember, that's what he said to the Israelites in Exodus 2. It says that God heard their groanings, saw their burdens on their backs, and he knew them. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, and he freed them from their bondage to slavery. For he will not leave his people under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And now these shadows have come to light in the coming of Christ and his kingdom, and, and he will not suffer his people to be bound to Satan. And in the very same words, Jesus saw this bound woman, he saw her and proclaimed a release, let her go, let my people go. You are freed, no longer bound. And to seal his words, he performs the miracle. He lays his hands on this woman and notice immediately, immediately, she stood up straight and glorified God. Immediately, in contrast to 18 long years of bondage, hear the authority in, in, in Jesus' voice. He is commissioned by the Father with this authority to loose people from their bondage to the tyranny of the devil. In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 4, if you remember his first sermon in the synagogue in his hometown, that's the sermon. And no doubt he preaches it again here. He says there in Luke 4 verse 16, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. For a world whose backs are bent under the bondage and the curse of sin, only Jesus has been given this authority to untie cords. And that's the gospel he preaches. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty. He is the Sabbath come in the flesh. He is rest. We come to church not just to fill pews, but... We come to church not just to sing a few songs and worship. We come not even to find physical rest. We come to be straightened out by his grace, to rest in Jesus. We come because he is here. And he sees the condition that we are in. He sees the condition that you are in. And, and he still yet proclaims liberty 
he still speaks. For his yoke is kind, his burden is light, and we find rest for our souls. In his tender kindness, Jesus raises the gaze of this woman to meet his own eyes, eye to eye, that she might know her Savior. And yet, not everyone in the synagogue is pleased or delighted by his ministry. We read, secondly, of these hypocrites in the synagogue, this supposed ruler of the synagogue who understands his office as ruler to mean he upholds the customs and traditions of their rigorous Sabbath-keeping. We come to understand that this man has a different view of the Sabbath. It's a crooked way of understanding. And we read that he becomes indignant and all bent out of shape, by Jesus' ministry, and he cloaks his anger directed at him as rather being an issue of proper Sabbath observance. And the center of the debate between Jesus and the ruler of the synagogue is over, over one little word. And we read that word twice, both in his explanation of the Sabbath in verse 14, and once again in Jesus' rebuttal in verse 16. And that little word is the word ought. And they're using the same word, but yet in vastly different meanings. The ruler of the synagogue is using the word ought in the sense of what are we compelled to do by the law? That's the issue. What does the law say must be done on the Sabbath? He is indignant at Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath day. The day in which the law compels us not to work. And so the man says in verse 14, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. And notice the Bible says he says this to the people. He tries to engage Jesus with the consensus of the synagogue rather than meeting him face to face because he is, he is cowardly disguising his own argument as an attack against Jesus. And still further, he is misusing the Bible to make his point. His argument is, is straight from Exodus, is straight from Deuteronomy. We read it week to week. It's biblical in that sense. There are six days in which work ought to be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And so with the law, he closes the door on grace. It's as if, Calvin writes, the power of God lay asleep on the Sabbath. Rather than being chiefly exerted on that day as a salvation for his people, this man treats the lawful observance of the Sabbath as if it it were a barrier from men coming to feel God's kindness. The crippled woman has been disabled for 18 years. That's his his argument. She's been disabled for 18 years. Must this really be done today on the Sabbath? Can't she wait for a few more hours? He's even invoking God's work. God's not working today. He's resting. Come back days one through six. He doesn't work on the Sabbath. To paraphrase again from Calvin, might as well close the doors of the synagogue. What's the point of coming to church if people can't expect to receive grace? This ruler's whole thinking is is to argue man was created for the Sabbath day rather than the Sabbath day being created for man. 
And what an offense to Jesus, who Luke deliberately calls, notice this in in verse 15, Lord. He calls him Lord. Then the Lord answered him. It's a note of authority. This isn't just a matter of opinions. This is the very lifeblood of the whole Sabbath institution. The Lord gives man the Sabbath. He is the reason there is Sabbath. And he works on the Sabbath. He's the same Lord who says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And now he's in their midst, proclaiming the truth and the substance of those words against this hypocritical spirit of religion, having all the form of godliness, denying its power. The rabbinical tradition had every jot and tittle worked down to its last detail. They understood that it was cruel and inhumane to let an animal sit in its pen the entire day without being led to water. And so they had laws, even down to what nose ring the the cattle could wear as it was let, let out to be watered, what chains could be used, what cords could bind the animal, what animals could have a saddle, what animals couldn't have a saddle. And so the Lord says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? You practice deeds of mercy to your animals understanding that it's a merciful thing to do, even though they could wait a few more hours. It's not going to harm them to wait another day, yet you do it anyways, even though though the law never makes any specific provision for work done by man or by animal. And yet, here is a daughter of Abraham who has been tied up by Satan for 18 years, and you refuse to untie her to bring her to God's mercy. Shame on you. She's been coming to church for 18 years and she's never been once been preached good news. That's what Jesus intends for the Sabbath. He he says in verse 16, Ought not this woman, isn't it right, isn't it necessary that she be delivered on the Sabbath day? That's why I've come. This daughter of Abraham, whose whole life has been weighed down by curse and shame and shackles of Satan, she must be delivered on this day, the Sabbath day, the day of rest. That is why I have come. As the year of God's favor, of his release of the captive, he has come as the Sabbath itself, that whosoever would believe in him would have rest in him. That's the wonderful announcement of his kingdom. He shows by his work that God indeed is working. He is not asleep. He's not resting from his work in us. But rather, every Sunday that we come to church, we are called to rest in the work of God in us through his Son and through his Spirit, who has come to wear the curse on his own back, to be bent downwards through shame and reproach, who was crippled to a crooked cross, where even the gaze of heaven itself rejected to look upon him, that he might cry out in victorious liberation for his people the beautiful words, it is finished. The work is done. They are set free from the bondage of sin. They are untied, loosed from the bonds of Satan and given rest so that they might look up at their Savior face to face 
not as animals loosed from a stall, but as children of the promise made once again to stand straight after being bent and crooked and, and, and forced downwards through the fall. And they can once again enjoy fellowship with God through the one whose body was broken for them. And see, by rejecting Jesus, that's ultimately what this ruler of the synagogue is rejecting. He is rejecting the saving power of God in favor for empty rules and regulations. And so it is with any of us. If we come to church but never put faith in Jesus Christ, then we don't have Sabbath rest. We have the structure of the Christian church. We might have physical rest but devoid of any of its power. And that's ultimately what causes these hypocrites to, head, to hang their heads in shame. They have nothing to say to this woman. They have nothing to say to Jesus. Instead, in their refusal, they have themselves become crippled. They hang their heads from their own back-breaking religion and, and traditions. It says in verse 17, As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, but all of the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And you see, when Sabbath is understood correctly, it always results in joy, in great joy, not drudgery or apathy, because it's God's announcement that he will straighten out what is crooked by the fall and by the curse of sin. And that's the final thing we see this evening. It's a Sabbath-straightening salvation. Jesus himself explains what has taken place with this miracle on the Sabbath. And notice he continues after the synagogue's amazement and rejoicing to explain the miracle with these two parables. The therefore that we read in verse 18 connects this, this section with everything else that has preceded it. Jesus explains that his kingdom is a Sabbath-bringing kingdom. His Sabbath rest will reverberate into all of life, every day of life. The freedom and liberty that his kingdom brings wraps us in its orbit for every moment of our lives until his kingdom consumes all of life into his eternal rest, eternal Sabbath. That's the message we see in these two parables. The first is this grain of mustard seed that is sown in the garden, and it grows and it grows and it grows until it becomes a tree, and then the birds fly to it and flock to it and, and use its branches to make their nests. It exponentially expands until it's universal. That's what's symbolized by these birds making their nests. The prophets, particularly Ezekiel and Daniel, often use birds as, as the nations who would flock to the branches of the fruitful tree of Israel. And this mustard seed would expand until the whole earth could flock unto its branches. And likewise with this leaven or yeast that is worked through throughout the whole dough, it's such a small thing, and yet the dough expands and expands until it balloons over the bowl. And it's a hidden work. Its work is not seen until after hours of patience, only after you've set the yeast and the flour and have set the bowl to the side and waited for hours. Then you come back and you see that it has doubled itself in size. until all of the earth has been leavened with the Spirit's hidden work upon the heart. Until this miracle which was performed will no longer be necessary because the whole earth will be made straight. The kingdom of God operates under this Sabbath principle which, which was disrupted at the garden. 
When the kingdom of Satan came to bind mankind in slavery, this woman who suffers the disabling spirit, it's not a normal thing. We too easily accept the realities of disabilities and disease and, and sin as normal life. And Jesus describes her condition as the binding of Satan himself. It's not a part of his kingdom. It's a part of Satan's kingdom, which is oppressive and tyrannical. His kingdom stands in opposition to the very order of creation, which God created. And, and when he finished his work, he declares it to be very good. And on the seventh day, he blesses it and consecrates all of life to himself, declaring it to be holy. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy so that he would reign over everything and receive the praise and honor due his name. But now with the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom come to earth, the holiness and sovereign reign that, that has been initiated by him is now initiated in human history, where he releases us from the kingdom of darkness and brings us into his kingdom of marvelous light. This story is but a glimpse, a but a glimpse of what is to come. These miracles that are performed are not one-time occurrences of supernatural power. They are signs. They are pointers. They tell the man born blind that, that God's glory will be displayed in straightening his vision. They tell the man Jairus, who lost his daughter at the ten tender age of 12, that, that God will bring resurrection and life, that tears and mourning and sorrow will be wiped away and laughter will fill its place. That in his kingdom, he will be all in all. And they tell this woman here that in God's kingdom, she will stand straight. She will glorify him for his sovereign love and full and free grace. And they tell you this evening that Sabbath is coming for you. Rest is promised. What is crooked will be made straight. What is bent will be taken to the anvil of grace and, and be worked out. Made as new. He announces that his kingdom is here, that, that he is inaugurated on this day, on a new day. They point to his resurrection. That upon the consummation of it, everything will be like this. The Sabbath is resurrection. Jesus being raised from the dead, entering God's rest. And he gives his spirit of resurrection to you, of Sabbath rest. So that the author of Hebrews could say there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God who enters rest through faith in Jesus Christ. We have already now the beginnings of this Sabbath rest. The Heidelberg Catechism says on the fourth commandment that every day of my life I rest from my sin, letting the Lord work in me through his spirit and so begin in this life already now the eternal Sabbath. Every day is our day of rest. He is our Sabbath. And as we come Lord's Day after Lord's Day to the, this place of worship, we placing our faith in him, day of all the weeks, the best, the week the best, the emblem of eternal rest. The announcement that he, he made to this woman who was released from her bondage is the same, very same gospel message that he pronounces and announces to us every week. And tonight, 
And you see, that's why the crowds rejoice. Because the miracle points beyond the woman. It points to the only one who can release us from the bondage of sin and bring us victoriously into true and everlasting Sabbath. And that's worthy of great joy, brothers and sisters. Why do we come to church? It's because this proclamation of Christ's victory over sin and death so intertwines with each and every day of our lives that we are wrapped up in its orbit until eternity. So that when you come to church with a a broken back, when you come crippled, ashamed to meet people in the eye, like this woman feeling cursed, shuffling for an open grave to fall into, bound up by the cords of sin, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ sees you. He sees your condition as it is, as helpless as it is, craning your neck, seeking his face. He doesn't say, sinner, fix thyself. He doesn't say, must you come on this Lord's day? There are six other days in which you can have healing. Come then. No, he says, today. Today, it is necessary that I tell you good news today. My Sabbath has come. My rest is available. Enter into my kingdom by faith. He doesn't say, someday maybe you can receive my grace. No, it says, immediately. Immediately she was made straight and glorified God. All of the work of sin and the devil's kingdom reversed and crushed in an instant. And that faith in him grows and grows and expands and expands until it reveals itself in its fullness, until every crooked thing is straight and reshaped. Until every bent desire is straightened out, until every day is like this day. Even as we sing in just a moment, may thy gospel's joyful sound conquer sinners and comfort saints. May The fruits of grace abound, bringing relief for all complaints. Thus may all our Sabbaths prove till we join the church above. May the victory proclaimed on the Lord's day echo into every day until every day is the Lord's day. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such gracious news that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, who dwells with sinners, who has become to us our righteousness, that we might stand victoriously in him before your face, that we could know the good news that our sins are forgiven that we have been released from the bondage of sin and Satan. And that we can have bright hope for the future of this week ahead, but for every day of our lives as we walk week to week until your promise comes to full fruition in the new heavens and the new earth. May you encourage us and fortify us in that hope, in that comfort. We ask this for Jesus' sake.